Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. It is Palm Sunday, so happy Palm Sunday to everybody. That's pretty cool, that's pretty exciting, and that's what we're going to talk about today as we look at John 12 and, and Luke chapter 19. We're going to um, talk about Palm Sunday. As we get into this text, what you need to know is that it's only four days now before the Passover time, and it's four days before the cross. So Palm Sunday happens then four days before the cross. That's going to be really significant as we get into this. Let's just read through our John text first. John 12, 12, and it says, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they had heard, and that's the feast of Passover that they're coming to Jerusalem for, they'd come to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they began to shout, Hosanna, Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, seated on a donkey's colt. Let's pray. Father, as we get into your word, we ask you to come and meet with us. Lord, we know that you know our hearts, you know right where we're at. We ask this morning that you'd stir our hearts, that as we get into your word, you'd speak directly to each one of us right where we're at. We would, we would be a people open-hearted, ready to do business with you. Lord, we didn't come here to hear from a man. We came here to hear from you. So we ask that you would use your word to speak to our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I want to take a little bit of a different approach for this particular Palm Sunday um, than kind of your typical or your classic triumphal entry sermon. Um, I feel like I've done that a lot. I just feel like I've taught on the Palm Sunday triumphal entry a lot in the real classic and kind of typical way. And we're about to do it again because we're in this series on the life and times of Jesus, which is kind of moving very close to that. So we'll be back there again. But I want to take a little bit of a different kind of approach this morning. And I want to put our focus on worship. Worship. And I want us to focus on a statement that Jesus made during the triumphal entry where he said, that if these don't cry out, the stones will. What he's saying is, if the people here on the Mount of Olives, as Jesus is riding down the Mount of Olives on this donkey in the triumphal entry, if they don't worship me, the most dead, inanimate object that we can think of, a rock, will cry out in worship. And, and so that's what we want to focus on this morning as we get into this. We're, we're going to kind of turn it toward worship as we... We'll go into another time of worship here today, and as Friday night, we're going to gather together for worship night, and we're going to celebrate all that Jesus did on the cross and setting us free. One of the cool things about talking about Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry right now at this point in time is that we've really, as we've gone through our series on the life and times of Jesus, we've already kind of studied all of the context for it. We've already studied all of the events that led up to this monumental um, ride down the Mount of Olives that we call Palm Sunday, where, where God the Father comes and He presents Jesus, His Son, as the Passover lamb on that Passover, the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. 
And so we've studied a lot of the context for it. We've studied a lot of what's going on. We studied all the things surrounding Jesus' birth, right? We studied all of the fulfilled prophecies around that and all of the events around that, that, that at the very time, at the very moment that mankind sinned and broke relationship with the holy God, that God put into motion this plan to redeem us back. And so he sent his son and we're redeemed back through Jesus Christ. It says, John says in in John 4.10, he says, this is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And so we've studied all the things around Jesus' birth and the fact that God became a man and came to earth. We've studied Jesus' earthly ministry up to this point. We've looked at all of the teachings and the preachings and all of the Jesus traveling around and proclaiming the gospel. We've seen the healings. We've seen him going around showing compassion on people. But recently we came to a major turning point in Jesus' ministry, didn't we? In our series on the life and times of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. That was just a couple weeks ago. Remember we studied the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus met there with Moses and Elijah And it tells us there that the purpose of that meeting was to then talk about Jesus' coming death and resurrection. A pivotal point. Jesus had been in ministry. He'd been traveling around. He was all the way up in Caesarea Philippi. He then goes up on the Mount Hermon for this transfiguration. And then from that point forward, everything changes. Now he's headed for the cross. From the transfiguration, he has this amazing moment where, where Moses and Elijah appear before him. And the, and the point of that meeting was to tell him and to explain to him and to encourage him and whatever they were doing with him. But it was all about the cross, his death, and his resurrection. Very pivotal moment. From everything forward from there moves toward the cross. And we read right after the transfiguration, it says, Now it came to pass that when the time had come for him to be received up, and this is what they say about Jesus, he steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. So after that meeting with Moses and Elijah, he steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. What it means is that he was fiercely determined. He was headed toward the cross. The cross was before him, and he was going, and nothing was stopping him. That's what's happening now. Most of the ministry that he had done, the compassion and all of the traveling around and the teaching and all of that is mostly behind him now and he has steadfastly set his face toward the cross. And the point is this, and this is what I want us to get as we begin to talk about the triumphal entry is this, that Jesus chose the cross. He steadfastly, he He fiercely determined to go to the cross. He chose the cross. What I mean by that is this. Jesus was not a victim. It wasn't 
a good plan gone wrong. It wasn't a, a good religious mo- you know, movement that, that turned horribly wrong at some point. Jesus chose the cross, and in so doing, he chose us. And we see that throughout the Gospels. We see it in his arrest when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and 600 Roman soldiers, it tells us there that it was a Roman cohort, which was 600 soldiers came to arrest him plus the officers that were sent from the high priest um, were there as well. 600 plus people. Mark and Matthew, they just say that the arresting party was a great multitude with swords and with clubs. They're coming to arrest Jesus in this massive group. And as soon as they get there, Jesus goes, who are you looking for? I said, Jesus the Nazarene. And what does he say? I am. And every single one of them falls over. And Jesus could have turned right then and walked away. But he didn't. He chose us. He chose us. He fiercely determined to go to Jerusalem to choose us on the cross. Right after that, what does Peter do? Peter whips out a sword there in the Garden of Gethsemane and hacks off this guy Malcolmus's ear. In the, he's defending Jesus, right? So I love Peter, dude. Peter's awesome. He's going to take on 600 plus soldiers just himself with one sword. But what does Jesus say? He says, put your sword back in your place. Do you not think that I could appeal to my Father and that He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that this must happen this way? He chose us. When Peter goes to defend him, Jesus goes, Peter, dude, this is what's supposed to happen. Do, do you think I don't have control here? Do you don't think I don't have... Dude, I could call and have 12 legions of angels right here. We could put a smack down on this whole place if, if I wasn't choosing you right now. Put your sword away. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He said earlier in John chapter 10, I lay down my life so that I can take it up again. No one has taken it from me but I lay it down on my own initiative and I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up. And because of His great love, Jesus chose the cross. And Palm Sunday brings us to a time which is four days before that cross where Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives four days before the cross, four days before the Passover, choosing us. Not four days is a significant thing. Because four days before the Passover, what was happening in Jerusalem was that every single father of his household household was going out into his flock. And what he was doing was picking the most perfect little lamb that he had for the Passover sacrifice. Four days. The very same day, Palm Sunday, Every father in Israel has gone out into their flock and they're looking for a one-year-old lamb, perfect, spotless, blemishless, the most perfect little lamby that they have. They bring him into the house for the next four days. They pre- he then presents it to the family and says, this is the best 
lamb that we have. This will be our Passover lamb. And on that very same day, in the triumphal entry during Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives, God the Father is presenting His Son to the nation of Israel. And He's going, this is it. This is my lamb. Who will believe in Him? This is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus climbed on a colt of a donkey that had never been ridden to fulfill a 520-year-old prophecy of Zechariah that says, Rejoice greatly. Now, now, remember, this was a day of rejoicing. We're, we're talking about worship. Keep that in mind. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and he is endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even the colt, the foal of a donkey. And in so doing, by, by climbing on this donkey and fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 and coming down the Mount of Olives in that way, Jesus is, is making a statement and leaving no questions unanswered on who he claims he is and what he claims he is doing. Everybody knew this prophecy, that the Messiah would come in this way, according to Zechariah 9 9. And now everybody's watching Jesus do it. It's no secret now. And that's important because of a comment that the Pharisees are about to make. Why did it need to be a foal, a colt, an unridden? Well, the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 specifies that it must be a colt of a donkey. It isn't until Luke chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus sends his disciples to go get this colt that he tells them to make sure that it's one that has never, ever been ridden. Why is that important? Because again, it demonstrates for us that God is in charge of this entire situation. Because what happens when you jump on a donkey that's never been ridden before? He's going to buck, isn't he? Add to that, people are waving palm branches in his face and yelling Hosanna and laying their coats in front of him. If anybody else tries to do this, we got Palm Sunday Rodeo. It's, it's not the triumphal entry anymore. It's a demonstration of the fact that I chose you and this moment has to happen and everything is happening just as it is supposed to. Everything's under control. Everything's happening according to God's word. Now turn to our, our Luke 19 passage. Luke 19, 36. We'll go a little bit deeper into Palm Sunday here. Luke 19, 36. And it says there, And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he approached near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully. Don't miss that. All of the disciples, Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives on this donkey, and all of the disciples begin to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all of the miracles that they had seen. Shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Mark and John 
In Matthew, I'll record that they were singing Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna is the Hellenized or, um, I'll make up a word, Greekized um, version of Hoshana. Hoshana in the Hebrew means save now. Save us now. They're, they're, Jesus is riding this donkey down the Mount of Olives and they're, and they're shouting, save us now. Now that means something. Because it says something about the people. One is it says that they were crying out for help. They felt that they needed something. It was a proclamation of their need. It was also a belief that Jesus could do something for them. It was also worship in the fact that salvation was coming. Now, These guys didn't completely understand the program of God here. Most of them were looking for a political or a military savior, right? Most of them wanted somebody that would come and free them from Rome. The Jewish people were under the oppression of Rome at at that time. And so most of them were looking for a political or a military savior. Save us now, but save us from Rome. Their, Their felt need was that they would be set free from the tyranny of Rome, what they didn't understand and what Jesus did understand was that their greatest need was a spiritual savior, not a, not a military savior, not a political savior. They needed to be set free from their sin. And so they had it right in what they were singing, save us now. They just didn't know exactly what they needed to be saved from. And it tells us in John's gospel that they didn't quite understand these things. It says, These things his disciples didn't understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, after he had risen from the dead, they remembered these things and how they were written and how these things went down. Nonetheless, what we need to understand about this moment in time is that it's such a monumental moment in human history that praise and worship was not only in order, it was necessary Praise and worship was not only a good thing here, it had to happen. Look at verse 39. As Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives and and they're singing praises to him, some of the Pharisees, they knew what this looked like. They knew what it looked like for him to come on a donkey. They knew the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. They knew what he was claiming. They knew that Psalm 118, which was being sung about him, was sung of the Messiah. And, And so... As they come down the Mount of Olives, the Pharisees said, the Pharisees that were in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop singing. Tell them to stop worshiping. Tell them that this is out of order. What does Jesus say in verse 40? But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now church, that's how colossal of a moment this was in time. That God would leave heaven and come to earth, the very earth that he created. That he would empty himself, setting aside his privileges as God and take on a life and the body of a man and live that life sinlessly. And then he would climb on a donkey and ride down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem to spend the next few days on the Temple Mount being challenged and scrutinized by the religious leaders so that he could show to all that he truly was the sinless, flawless Lamb of God, perfect in every way, and then be arrested 
and be beaten and insulted and spit upon and taken outside of the city and hung on a cross like a criminal in the most torturous way that anybody could invent. That, that was the whole point of the cross. was to be the most torturous way. The Romans wanted it to be a deterrent for anybody else under their oppression to do anything that they weren't supposed to do. So this was a pretty good deterrent. The cross was designed to inflict the most pain for the longest period of time until you die. And all of that, all the way through, was to take my sin and my pain and my shame and my guilt on himself so that I could be set free. When he hung on the cross, that's exactly what he did. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That was written 700 years before that triumphal entry. And that's our story, isn't it, church? That's our story. Very clear. Colossians 2.13 and 14 says, You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not cut away yet. And then the most beautiful words, Then God made you alive with Christ, for He forgave us all of our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away, nailing it, to a cross, amen? As Jesus came down that mountain, headed for the cross, all of the people began to worship. It was such a monumental time. They began to shout, Hoshina, Hoshina, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. And the Pharisees that were on the Mount of Olives, they said, Jesus, you've got to stop all this. Why? Because they were afraid. They were afraid of several things. One is they were afraid of how popular Jesus had become. It was detracting from them and what they were teaching. And he'd been challenging them all through his ministry. They were also afraid of the Romans. Because if any, even hint of a upheaval or rebellion began, the Romans would come and squash them. In fact, they said just earlier, just before this, it said that the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and they're saying, what are we doing about this Jesus guy? He's performing so many miracles. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And listen to what they said. And the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. They were afraid. And so as Jesus is coming down the, the Mount of Olives and and you can hear it from the Temple Mount. The Antonio Fortress, you guys have been there with me in Israel. As you come down the Mount of Olives, the Antonio Fortress was right there. All the Romans are in the Antonio Fortress. And they have a, a porch on top. They're all standing up there. And all of a sudden, they hear all of these Jewish guys yelling, Save us now! Save us now! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. There's no king in Israel. There's a Roman governor in Israel. They say, Jesus, tell, tell your guys to pipe down. We're, we're going to get in trouble for this. But nothing, and this is what we need to get, nothing could stop the worship of the coming king. Nothing could stop it. Jesus coming into Jerusalem, headed to the cross to redeem humanity, was such a significant event that if the people don't worship, if they don't sing, if they don't cry out, then the rocks are going to do that. that. That's how worthy of worship Jesus is. And so I want to point out two things real quick before we wrap up. One is that Jesus' church is worthy of our worship. Therefore, we should worship Him for all He has done and all that He is. You see, that that first Palm Sunday was such a monumental event, so worthy of worship that if God's people didn't worship, the stones would cry out. But here's what I want us to get. Here's what I want us to embrace as we're about to go into another time of worship and as we come together on Friday night and as we worship, Jesus is no less worthy of our worship on this Palm Sunday than He was on that Palm Sunday. He hasn't changed. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is no less worthy of our worship today than He was 2,000 years ago. The cross, the resurrection, and Jesus headed for that is no less powerful, no less life-changing today than it was then. Jesus is the same. That's what worship is. It's understanding His worth. It's an expression of thanks and gratitude and praise to Him for who He is and what He's done. That's where we get this word worship from. It comes from the Old English, worth-ship. We ascribe to Him worth-ship. It's done on the basis of His value. How valuable is Jesus to us? We place worth-ship on something in direct proportion to how valuable it is, don't we? We spend our time and our effort and our money and, and our energy and all that we have on those things that are most valuable to us, don't we? They, they take up more of our thoughts and, and more of our dream and, and more of our energy. So, so what is most worship to you? What, what is most valuable to you? What is most worthy to you? How, how valuable is Jesus? How valuable is the cross? You see, we see throughout Scripture, especially in the Psalms, that we are supposed to respond to God based on who He is and what He's done. Listen to this. Psalm 92 says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord. Psalm 98 Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm has gained the victory for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nation. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We're to respond to the Lord based on who He is and what He's done. All throughout Scripture, we are exhorted to worship 
Jesus to worship God for who He is because He is the Creator, because He's our rock, because He's our defense, because He's faithful, because He's our Savior, because He alone has the ability to save our souls, because He is love. Jesus didn't die on the cross because he wanted to start a new religious movement. Jesus saved our souls because he himself is good and he himself is love. It's his very nature. For God so loved the world. It's who he is. And the way that we respond to God's love is praise. The way that we respond to that is thanksgiving. The way we respond to that is worship. It's not just a few songs before or after a sermon. It's praise to the one who saved your souls from going to hell. He's worthy of of all of our worship. He's worthy of us being here early to worship. He's worthy of us staying late to worship. He's worthy of us coming with our hearts prepared for worship. He's worthy. King David wrote Psalm 118. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God and my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. He says, I'm going to call on you, Lord, because you're worthy. It's important for us as a church to remember what we've been saved from. You see, Jesus came down the Mount of Olives that day for a cross. He determined to go to Jerusalem for a cross. He steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem because there was a cross there for him. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's just as worthy of our praise today as he was 2,000 years ago. We're going to go into a time of worship in a few minutes. And as we do that, I want us to take the time to remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then respond to him for what he's worth. Respond to him because he's worthy. There's an old gospel song I was going to try and get Tevin, those guys, to, to learn it, but I didn't want to torture him with it. it. It's a little bit hokey, but I kind of like it. It's called, I Ain't Gonna Let No Rock Sing in My Place. You guys ever heard that? If it depended on your worship to keep the rock silent, would they cry out? David said, ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name. The final thing that I want to consider is that on the Mount of Olives, as Jesus came down there, He set His people free to worship. He set them free to worship. When the Pharisees tried to stifle worship, when they came and said, you got to shut this thing down, what did Jesus do? He says, no, we're not having that. If these don't worship, the stones will cry out. And I'll be honest with you, church, I believe that this is an area where we need breakthrough in the understanding and the feeling and the enjoying the freedom that we have in worship. There's freedom in worship. As we now go into a time of worship and as Friday night as we come together in worship, I want us to feel 
free to be abandoned in the presence of the Lord. Listen, biblical worship, that means worship that we see within Scripture, it's alive, it's engaged, it's active, it's passionate, it's free, and it's expressive, isn't it? Read your Bible. Look look at the worship in it. Throughout the whole of Scripture, we see worship as expressive and active and alive and moving. Listen, shout to the Lord, all the earth. Come before Him with joyful singing. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Shout, let us shout with joy to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with songs. Come, let us bow down and kneel before our Maker. That's okay. You can shout to the Lord. You can come and bow And kneel before your maker. Psalm 47 says, Come, let us clap our hands and shout to God with joyful praises for the Lord Most High is awesome. He's a great king over all the earth. Psalm 98 says, Shout to the Lord all the earth. Break out in praises and sing with joy. Let them praise Him with, and here it comes, church, dancing. It says it in the Bible. Let them praise them with dancing. Amen, Rain? Let them praise Him with dancing. Let them sing praises with Him with the timbrel and the lyre. Praise Him with the trumpet sounds. Praise Him with the harp and with the lyre. Praise Him with the tremble and with dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and a pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I bless you as long as I live and I will lift my hands to your name. You see, worship is to be expressive because worship is an expression of what's going on in your heart. And if You're passionate in your heart for Jesus. It's okay for your worship to be expressive. It's an expression of what's going on in the heart. And it's very biblical. Scripture, throughout the whole of Scripture, we're exhorted to be expressive and alive and passionate in our worship. To sing and clap and to shout and to bow and to kneel and to lift hands. And yes, church, even dance. It said it right there. When King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, it says that he danced before the Lord with all of his might in his underoos. That's what it says. 2 Samuel 6.14, and David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. The linen ephod is the priestly garment that they would wear underneath their other garments. It's his underwear. Now, I only bring up that point to say this. <laughs> Before anybody gets down to their underwear, hold up a minute. You've got to be careful with that text, don't you? Sometimes, a lot of times, we're really worried about what someone next to us is thinking in worship, right? We're worried about what, what 
the people around us think. And we're afraid to raise our hands sometimes. Sometimes people are afraid to come and kneel when they know the Lord's calling them to do that because they're afraid of what someone might think. But here's what we need to understand. Worship's not about them. It's only and solely about the Lord. In fact, when when King David was coming into Jerusalem and he was dancing in his underoos before the Lord with all of his might, it says that when he got home, it says that his wife despised him with all of her heart as she was watching out the window. As the procession came into Jerusalem, she's looking out the window. It says, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Machel, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And when David came and he returned and he blessed his household, it says, Machel, the daughter of Saul, came to David and said, how the king has distinguished himself today, for he has uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant. She was bummed at him. She's watching out the window and going, what a dork this guy is. He's supposed to be the king. He's out there in his linen ephod, dancing like a crazy man in front of the ark. And you know what David said to Mahel? I love this. So David said to Mahel, it was before the Lord. It was before the Lord. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. You know what he's saying in essence? It doesn't have anything to do with you. Think what you want to think. It was before the Lord. And then he goes on to say, and I will be even more undistinguished than this. And I will be humble in my own sight. And God judged Mahel for her critical spirit of David when he was really celebrating in his heart to the Lord. See, God knew David's heart and that that worship was really unto him. And worship is to be expression of what's going on in the heart. So therefore, it's okay for it to be passionate if you're passionate in your heart. So as we go into a time of worship now, and as as we think about Jesus coming down that Mount of Olive to redeem our souls, and as we think about Good Friday and the cross, and all that that means to us, and that it set us free, let us worship, church, for all that the Lord is worth and all that He is and all that He's done. Ephesians 1, 6 says this. So we praise God for the grace, for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that He has purchased our freedom with the blood of the Son and forgiven our souls. So we praise God for the glorious grace which has been poured out on us. That's why we praise. As we go into a time of worship, let's worship Him for all He's worth. You weren't meant just to show up. You were meant to be engaged to worship to the One who created you, who loves you, and who died to redeem you. Amen? Lord, we, uh, we come before You humbly. Because we recognize we're not worthy of what you did for us on the cross. Lord, we come before you humbly because you set your face steadfastly to Jerusalem and you chose us. 
We come before you, Lord, and we ask you to forgive us for times where we've been flippant in your presence. We haven't taken you seriously. And we ask right now, Lord, that you would stir in us a heart to worship. That we would be fired up to meet with you. That we would remember what that donkey ride meant. Because you were headed toward a cross that saved our souls. And in that, you set us free. And Lord, ain't no rock gonna cry in my place. So we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.